This is Alyssa Olenek of Little List Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs. We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in the messy middle. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Messy Middle Podcast. We are super excited this week to chat some exercise science with you. So we figured before we dive into the nitty gritty, the deep end of the exercise science podcast we have coming with our amazing guests, where we talk about maybe more advanced terminology or exercise science principles that maybe you might be unfamiliar with, especially those listeners that don't have undergraduate or graduate level degrees in exercise science or similar. We wanted to kind of give you a podcast episode that was just a really, really general reference point. So we're going to just define a lot of general terminology from the field of exercise physiology. For those of you who are not aware, Kate and I actually both teach undergrad exercise physiology lab as part of our job requirements for our TA ships through our PhD. So this is like the general information we are giving our little kiddos, our young scientists, but we're bringing it here for you today. So that way you can feel empowered and educated, as I like to say, when you're listening to our podcast episodes or consuming our content, or if you just want to learn more about your body exercise terminology, and you don't know a great place to start, we want this to be super general. So with that being said, I need to give a disclaimer for my disclaimer because I'm Alyssa and I always want to make sure that we are understood and clear when we are doing things. There's tons of levels of depth below and beyond what we are going to talk about here today. So those of you who maybe have undergraduate degrees or graduate degrees in these things, and you're like, but what about this point? Understand that we probably know that deeper level of depth or we study it or research it. But keep in mind that a good chunk of our population that listens to our podcast are people that may have never even heard the word anaerobic in their life. So we want to make sure that it's being brought to a level where we're bridging the science to gen pop. So even my mom can listen to this and feel like she learned something at the end of the day. So We're super excited to walk you through all things exercise science, general training terminology and principles that you can feel help add to your repertoire of knowledge and apply to your own fitness program or listening to our podcast moving forward. One of the first things we want to dive into is how exercise can be classified. So beyond just what type of activity or modality you're doing, like running, swimming, biking, lifting, we can classify based on energy systems. And Alyssa is going to dive a little bit deeper into that, but I want to start very broad with the terms aerobic and anaerobic. Aerobic simply means with oxygen, whereas anaerobic means without oxygen. And without getting too nitty gritty, I want to just generally say that we use this thing called ATP. There's these small energy molecules that basically provide us with the fuel that we need to accomplish any kind of movement or any kind of process at a cellular level in our bodies. And that's called ATP. And we can get ATP through a few different systems. Alyssa is going to detail them in a moment. But what you should know is that we can use ATP, shuttle ATP for our muscles to use via oxygen. So oxygen, you can think of as a bus driver and all the little kiddos are ATP and oxygen is going to deliver some ATP. And that is your aerobic forms of exercise. Whereas your anaerobic does not need oxygen to drive the bus. The kids are just walking to school and, (laughs) and they walk to school a lot faster because essentially your anaerobic system is able to produce a lot more ATP rapidly. And that means that it's really efficient, but you cannot do that 
for very long. So your anaerobic systems are going to be when you're using really short, high intensity efforts that you need a lot of energy quickly for, whereas your aerobic are going to be something where you can do it longer at a more sustainable rate. So oxygen is going to help you. That doesn't mean that you can do anaerobic activities without breathing. Okay. (laughs) You still need oxygen to live. So that's important. Um, But when it comes to classifying these energy systems, you have aerobic and anaerobic, and you can even break down anaerobic a couple of steps further, which Alyssa is going to detail. But what's important is that no particular type of exercise is anaerobic or aerobic. You can do them differently. So running is a great example. People love to think of running as an aerobic activity, when in reality, you can do running for short, high-intensity efforts, which would require more of your anaerobic system, and your aerobic system would be more useful um, in a longer bout. So it could be running for 10 minutes up to hours and hours on end in Alyssa's ultra marathon style, right? So it's important to note though, that all of these systems are being used. They're not just on and off switches. Alyssa's going to go a little bit further into that for you now. All right. So if you guys don't know, Your girl loves some energy system physiology. This is the foundational driver of everything. When I talk about what I research and study and I'm interested in being metabolism, I'm talking about energy systems. And so these are what they sound like. These are the physiological systems within our body that our body uses foodstuffs, which is a science way of saying carbs, protein, fat, alcohol. Technically, it's a food stuff. Um, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't use it. I wouldn't use it as your main food stuff, but your body can. Um, to turn that into ATP. So everything you eat for the rest of your life is going to be either stored or burned. And if it's burned, it's going to be turned into ATP for energy production. And that's how your body, your body does this a few different ways. And so like Kate so eloquently said, is we have anaerobic and aerobic metabolism. And I think I really want to drive home the point there that these things aren't cutoff points. I know in a lot of like very basic exercise physiology and the old graphs, they show it as like, you're only using one system, then you're only using the other, but your body uses these intricately and can use multiple systems at once um, or rely on more of one system while the other one is still happening. And it's not just a cutoff on and off point. So physiology isn't that simple. I wish it was. It'd make my life a lot easier. (laughs) But it's important to recognize that you can have two systems happening kind of simultaneously. So as Kate so eloquently said, our energy systems can be broken down into anaerobic, non-oxygen dependent, and aerobic, oxygen dependent. And so within that, there's a couple different systems that can work and overlap, as I just kind of stated before. And so the first one that your body uses primarily in the onset of exercise is the phosphocreatine system. So those of you who have been in bro science world, you've probably heard of the supplement creatine. This is where that actually comes into play and actually has a role in our body. And side note, because people are probably curious, creatine is one of the most evidence-based supplements we have because of this reason. So in our phosphocreatine system within our bodies, we have a phosphorus group that means nothing to you but you have think of a p with a circle around it that's how i always draw it in my notes and it's attached to a creatine so you have a single creatine molecule and your phosphorus group attached to it and your body can rapidly break those apart and when it breaks off the p from the creatine it releases energy and allows you to produce a ton of energy super rapidly so think about when you're doing like a one rep max and all out sprint and you have that really high power super rapid like combustion is literally what's kind of going on in your body but it can't sustain that for long periods of time, right? We can't do our one rep max over and over and over again. We only have short periods of time where we can sustain that. And like the general rule of thumb is like 10 seconds or so, give or take. But keep in mind, this gets replenished like during exercise. And that's why we take rest periods and things like that. But as soon as your body quote unquote ends with the creatine system, 
it will begin to ramp up and or start using anaerobic glycolysis. So if you remember Kate with her bus driver versus kids walking to school analogy, we use anaerobic glycolysis, which is really carb dependent because it can produce a ton of energy really rapidly. And so Carbs are a lot easier to break down in our body than fat. It doesn't require as many preliminary steps. Your body can just basically take carbs. You can think of carbs as six little balls tied together and your body splits, splits them in half into threes and then twos. And it's really, really easy to do that. It's super, super simple to do that where you can think of fats as like long Christmas ornaments that take a lot to unravel and untie like kind of thing. Tinsel and <laughs> yeah, it's like light streams. Tinsel and light streams. You need a whole other process. So your body really likes to break down carbs because it's really rapid. It's really easy to do and it doesn't require oxygen to break down carbohydrate. And so this is going to be more of your moderate and higher intensities, medium duration type activities and or you could oscillate between this and when I talk about aerobic within your exercise activity. So this isn't just only, you're not only using carbs when you're not using oxygen, but that's a really rapid, easy way for you to do that. And that's why a lot of your activities at a short, high burst of energy are going to be very glycolytic. You'll hear people say that. And that's just a fancy word of saying they're using glycolysis and carbohydrate metabolism to make ATP. So you get really, really rapid, quick energy right then and there. And so if you try to sustain activities like that with those intensities, as you guys know, you start to kind of tap out. And so whenever your body tries to undergo a lot of non-oxygen dependent exercise metabolism for a sustained period of time, you start to accumulate lactate, not lactic acid, my friends, lactate. Don't get it <laughs> twisted. <laughs> so lactate is a byproduct of energy metabolism. And I think this is really important to know is a lot of people think that lactate only occurs in your body when you're using non-oxygen dependent metabolism and starts to accumulate and burn our muscles and slow us down and hangs out in our muscles and make us sore. None of that is true. I'm sorry if I just broke all your hearts and rocked all of your worlds. But lactate is constantly being accumulated in your body. Right now you're sitting here maybe doing nothing um, or maybe you're listening to this on a run, but either way, lactate is being produced in your body. The biggest difference is that your body is able to clear it out at the same rate of which it's making it. So whether you're using oxygen or not, your body's able to produce and clear out lactate and actually gets recycled into carbohydrate or energy metabolism in either your liver, your heart, or with other muscles of your body, there's a lactate shuttle. Um, I love this kind of stuff. It's really fun, but I'll stop you guys there. But it's rapidly cleared out. And this happens either as a way for your body to actually allow you to sustain exercise for longer. So it'll start to clear lactate because it collects um, a bunch of quote unquote hydrogen ions, but eventually your body cannot keep up with that. It can't clear the lactate and it's going to accumulate metabolites. And that is the soreness and burning that you feel that causes among right. other things we're not going to get into in this podcast today, fatigue and burning. But if you wanted to go into longer duration exercise, as you guys know, you have to slow it down. But slowing down allows your body to pull more oxygen into the muscle and use that for energy metabolism. And so that's going to be aerobic metabolism. And that is, if you guys have heard me ever talk about how much I love mitochondria, this is where that actually occurs. So within the mitochondria, in your muscle cells, they are able to use oxygen to create ATP and you can have aerobic glycolysis. You can have energy dependent carbohydrate bre breakdown, which will then bring in the end byproducts of that into the system and or fat will come into here as well. And so you can use oxygen. So with this, because fat's harder to break down, you can get a ton more ATP from it. So your body's able to derive energy from both carbohydrates and fat. So you're getting more bang for your bunk, 
buck and you're able to go longer, but you're not able to go as intense. So you guys can see as you go longer, you're going to have to go slower, but you're able to sustain it more. And that's how these energy systems interact. But it's important to note within that if you are going, if I'm going on my ultra marathon run and I decide to sprint up a hill, I'm going to shift maybe into a little bit of anaerobic metabolism and then shift back. So it, this is fluid in these energy systems. They're always functioning together, but they are going to be the bread and butter foundation of what's going on in your body to derive energy in anything that you're doing with exercise. So it's a little long-winded. No, Sorry, I was going to make a quick note. Yeah. I'm going to make a quick note. Maybe we'll insert it right after you talk about lactic acid. So I think what's important to note is that lactic acid does exist it's just immediately dissociated. So lactic yeah. acid is really just a hydrogen connected to a lactate. Yeah. And so that's why both of these things go together. And like Liz is saying, our lactate we use, it's recycled. Our hydrogen ions kind of become a little bit pesky. Um, sometimes <laughs> they get in the way of muscle contraction uh, without getting too much into the science of, you know, where hydrogen is binding and all of that. <laughs> um, it, it can kind of make the muscle contraction a little bit difficult. That can also be a potential source of burning. So an accumulation of hydrogen ions also makes you more acidic. So that can be problematic because, of course, your body wants to regulate and maintain homeostasis. It likes to be at a certain um, pH, a certain body temperature, all of these things. So accumulating hydrogen ions can also be difficult because now your body is fighting your acidosis, essentially, that can also interfere with some other processes that is not great while you're in the middle of exercise. And so building on that, essentially, as soon as oxygen is available, again, your body is going to use this thing called the lactate shuttle to re-metabolize that. You'll have oxygen so you can begin creating energy from other sources, but also that lactate will be rapidly cleared out of that muscle um, and you won't feel that fatigue anymore. So when people say things like you need to clear the lactic acid from your muscles, it's happening pretty much immediately after right. um, that once that goes away. But I think it's important for you guys to know exactly what Kate said. But once oxygen is available again, that like it's being rapidly cleared out of your muscles. Right. And we didn't actually plan for this, but to touch a little bit on muscle soreness <laughs> because we're bringing up lactic, lactic acid. <laughs> um, when you have DOMS, which is delayed onset muscle soreness, it's not because of a metabolite like lactate, right? Um, no. It's going to be something uh, that you cause damage to your muscle. And essentially we create these little micro tears in our muscle. We're actually like breaking down our muscle in order to build it back better. So and having an inflammatory response, which a lot of people yes. think of inflammation as bad, but it's the inflammation that's causing pressure and you're registering it as pain and you have these micro tears. It's literally never lactate. Right. Also yeah. important to note when it comes with inflammation, a lot of people, like you said, they, they feel that inflammation is bad and so you want to reduce it. And so some people will take ibuprofen to like reduce their DOMS, uh, which if you don't have really severe greens, right? <laughs> Uh, which if you don't have like really severe, severe DOMS, I really advise against this because it, that natural inflammatory process is really important for like muscle regeneration. And if you are using ibuprofen, you actually knock out a bunch of satellite cells, which are really important helpers of that process to build your muscle back up. So if you don't have to take ibuprofen for any reason, don't. <laughs> yeah. Or abusing your antioxidant supplements. You know who you are. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to pass this back to Kate since we got a little a little in there on the energy system. Yeah, we kind of so did, talk, but we love them. Okay. Energy systems are really important. And so we're going to talk now on fiber types, which 
this kind of plays directly hand in hand with energy systems and then the type of activities that we're doing. So Kate. Yeah, absolutely. So your muscle fiber types are going to be based on your energy system that you use. So every muscle in your body has little fibers that are what help, you know, hold the contractile units that make your muscle go. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we're talking about muscle fiber types, um, each muscle in your body is going to have a different makeup. So it's not as if you always have 50% type one, 50% type two, there's different mixes and matches, um, depending on what your muscle is primarily used for. So to go through the muscle types, um, if you want to simplify it the most, we have type one and type two. Um, type two can be broken down into A and B. Um, you also might see it as X, um, and this just depends on if you're using an animal or a human model. <laughs> so yeah. Um, we're humans here, so it's X. So it's X. Um, <laughs> so when we talk about type one, these are the muscles that are going to produce less power, but they don't, they're not as fatigable. So this means that these are more of your aerobic, right? These can go longer, um, but they don't, they're not as forceful, as intensely energetic as your type two fibers. So they can keep firing over and over and over without getting exhausted. Um, for example, if you think of the muscles in your shin that are used to, um, you know, raise your toes, like flex your foot, um, those are going to be the ones that are primarily type one fibers because they're using that small repeatable action every day when you are walking, when you are running. Um, that's just the way that your foot needs to move. Um, it does, you don't ever see anybody loading their toes at the gym to do like <laughs> curls. So that's a good example of a type of um, muscle that would be primarily type one because of the use of the muscle. So we always think of like, you know, function follows form. So if you are primarily made up of type one um, muscle fibers for that muscle, then it's going to kind of dictate its function. Um, you can think of the opposite on the back of your leg is your gastroc or your calf muscles, right? And those are going to be producing a lot more force. So you've seen people do calf raises. You can load yourself up with a bunch of weight. Your calves um, are going to have a lot more type two fibers and those are going to be able to produce a lot more force. These are your more anaerobic fibers. So when it comes to type 2, we can break that down to X and A. So your type 2X, think of the complete opposite. These are going to be your fast glycolytic muscle fibers, meaning that they are anaerobic. They are just, you know, your muscle hamster, <laughs> right, type of fibers. Like a little less fibers. Little less fibers. Um, my physiology instructor told me that these are your couch potato fibers. And I love this <laughs> because um, tend, couch potato people, people who are more sedentary, tend to have more X than A. And you can actually kind of shift your fiber type between X and A. And I'll get into that in a moment. But essentially, your couch potato fibers, the meaning behind that is that you're not, when you're using your type 2 fibers to get up off of that couch... <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> no, and it's funny though. Leave so good because on the spectrum of metabolic flexibility, they yeah. consider metabolically inflexible to be reflective of like a heavily type two. Yeah, type two X. X yeah, phenotype yes. because they're not using any. Right. You just need that one intense effort of getting up off of your couch, that's and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So your type two X are are going to be like if you are trying to do maximal force one time. You know, <laughs> like they they're going to be really fatigable. So. Right after you get up off of that couch, don't expect to do a second rep. <laughs> so for, for 
for application's sake, you can train your type 2X to be strong and powerful, or you can be detrained, and that is truly your one rep max. Yeah. Like, that's actually yes. not... We're making fun jokes I here. Um, but think about, like, maybe the elderly person who has to use all of their force to stand up versus, like, us saying people are lazy. You probably can get up yeah. off your couch yes, just you fine. I have ultimate faith in you. <laughs> but that's, like, an issue you see with that versus, like, if you're strong and you go to the gym, you do mm-hmm. one rep max. It's the same thing. You can be trained or detrained within all the systems. Right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so just because you have these fibers, like, doesn't make you more or less superior. They're just there. Yeah. Right? So, like, you can, again, train up all of your fibers to be stronger. Um, But what's important to note is that your type 2 fibers can shift between X and A. So your type 2A are going to be like your hybrid fibers. They can utilize both systems. Um, They're what we call fast twitch oxidative, so they can use oxygen and those energy systems. Um, And this is going to be important for some endurance activities that are going to require a little bit more strength behind them. So they are not going to be as long lasting as your type one fibers, but they're able to produce more force for longer for your type two fibers, increasing your mitochondria density um, that you do through endurance training is what's going to kind of promote a more oxidative fiber that is able to go for longer. (laughs) I don't like the way that I'm saying this, but Liz, I'll tap you in if you want to say anything there. So the last thing I'm going to add to what Kate said there is I know a lot of people get like they really want to know what their genetic predisposition for things are. And while we can't take muscle biopsies of all of you guys and they kind of hurt, so you probably wouldn't want it to happen <laughs> anyway. Um, gen pop people, us everyday regular people. Uh, well, maybe not me. <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa's speaking for the people of me and everyone listening. This is not me being like arrogant. I just have some interesting genetics. Um well, this is interesting. We can actually contrast because I am very oxidative. Yeah. Like, I am a cardio machine. Once, like, I can be very detrained and train very quickly into a higher VO2 max, um, whereas Alyssa is built for that hamster muscle life. I am a muscle hamster. <laughs> I am a giant type tooth muscle fiber. But I think it's important to note that the most gen pop people are going to be about 50-50. Now, that can vary. Not every gen pop person is exactly 50-50. Like, we're just, that's a general rule of thumb. That's the reference they use in a lot of textbooks. But when you think of, like, elite athletes, like, when you're thinking of your elite marathoners, they're most likely going to have a genetic predisposition of type 1 muscle fibers. They tend to say upward of 80%. We joked in my advanced muscle phys class this semester that the guy who ran almost the two-hour marathon he probably doesn't have a single glycolytic type yeah, two no fiber type two on his body he's just a one giant type one muscle fiber now that's silly because he needs some power output to do that but of course his his genetics probably predispose him where maybe Usain Bolt is that how you say his name probably has a a large genetic predisposition for a ton of glycolytic powerful type two muscle fibers. So you can improve all of your muscle fibers with training. If you are like, I'm living proof that you can have type two muscle fibers and endurance train. Will I ever run elite marathon times? Probably not. Could I be faster if I would just get over my beefcakeness? Probably I can train within that. Obviously like I'm not a terrible endurance athlete, but you guys have probably seen me on my Instagram page. I'm going to touch a weight and I'm just going to get stronger pretty, pretty rapidly. Like I'm just very genetically predisposed to be fast, powerful, quick. And that it's probably, I'm just leaning a little bit more on that spectrum of what I've been given. And that's, you can kind of just tell with what you pick up more Mm-hmm. easily like you have mm-hmm. those friends who can go and they can sustain 730 paces on their runs and you have to train for years to have where I can go to a gym and within three years of powerlifting I pick up 400 pounds like there's just going to be 
that's just how life and bodies work. Right, yeah. um, but you can kind of get a hint, but that doesn't mean you can't train within the other spectrum. So like my Olympic lifting coach, Noah, used to tri- triathlons. And he was actually better mm-hmm. at them than Olympic lifting. But Lovely. he's still very strong. So don't think that's a limit. And then Kate is my aerobic yeah. counterpart. Yeah. No, and I think some of that too is like there's there's also something to be said about your nurture, right? So we're yeah. talking about our nature and our genetics, but also like I grew up swimming too. So I was not only probably already genetically predisposed to be a more cardiovascularly inclined individual, but I did swimming all the time, every mm-hmm. day, multiple hours a day. So I was really building myself to be that way. And when we talk about that transition between type 2X and type 2A, um, it's possible too that we in our formative years, like develop a more strong preference to that fiber type transition um, because that's the way that we train. Yeah. And I think it's important to say for all people listening to this is regardless of what you think you are, one, don't limit yourself by what you think your genetics have for you. And two, training is a powerful stimulus because if I actually went out and did speed work, I'd probably be a lot faster of a runner. And if you took six months off to be a beefcake, you'd probably- Oh, I've done it. Yeah. (laughs) So don't limit yourself by this. It's just giving very, very oversimplified examples. It probably determines your upper limits more than it does your potential. And that's really important to take away. Yeah. And most of us aren't trying to be Olympic athletes, so it doesn't probably even matter. You can probably, like if your goal- and maybe I don't need to include this, but if your goal is to just like do a triathlon, you don't, it doesn't matter what your genetic predisposition is. I, you can do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not. No, we leave this in here. Cause this is important because like, this right. is where how, how the entire foundation of hybrid training comes from is the fact that most of us have the ability to, to improve in both of these areas and you can improve mm-hmm. all these fiber types. And there is some interference within energy systems and pathways that we'll talk about in another more in-depth episode. Um, but it's important to note that like you can improve and train all these. You have these muscle fibers somewhere in your body. Like yeah. everyone has all of these. And so training is a very robust stimulus that can improve these things for you. Um, but these are the energy systems and the fiber types. Like these are what drives your activity. So it's just important to keep in mind of like what is, and that's why you have to do high, heavy, hard, powerful stuff to get stronger and faster. Right. You can't only do slow, low aerobic, but that builds an aerobic base, which we know is necessary and essential for almost all recoverability and all activities that we do. Yeah. And so this kind of transitions us greatly into our next areas of topic, because we want to talk about how these energy systems are actually used in exercise, as Alyssa just mentioned, like how you want to train. So when we talk about measures of fitness, which is important because that's kind of what we're aiming to achieve sometimes, uh, maybe in a very scientific sense, or maybe just in completing that 5k or, you know, hitting that lifting PR. So we can measure our fitness and then we can also apply training principles that are working with our energy systems in the maximal way, like to, to, Maximize the potential. potential. Thank you. Yes. Yes, because we want to maximize the potential of our training, of our energy systems. So we need to be training in a way that is specifically targeting those energy systems. And that's why um, you see a lot of people misusing HIT and other (laughs) forms of training is because they're trying to target something in a a way. Essentially, if your favorite Fitzbo cannot tell you what energy systems are and what they do, (laughs) they're not training appropriately because energy systems go into the understanding and these general principles we're about to talk about into how we think about training and structure and training programs. And while there's a million and one ways to do things, they all usually are trying to improve a few measures. And so I'm going to talk about the ones like strength, power, hypertrophy, muscular endurance, and when we're at max, like I want to talk about these general things with you. And then Kate's going to get into a little bit more of what your aerobic based goals ones will be. Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? 
In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they are fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed with what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MESSYMIDDLE at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. So first, what the heck is muscular strength? So you guys probably know this. This one might be a little bit redundant, but the formal definition, muscular strength is a measure of force that can be exerted against a resistance in a brief maximal effort. Strength is commonly used as a measure of either like a one rep max or a maximal voluntary contraction, which is essentially a isometric resistance. And they have these things called hand dy- dynamometers. Is yeah, that how you dynamometer. say it? Dynamometer. Dynamo- I can never say it when Dyn- I teach every year. Dynamometer. My students, if you're listening to this, they know they've heard me. I mispronounce it every year. I'm phonetically challenged for those who correct my grammar. Thank you very much. Um, but it's either your maximal force your muscle and or body can produce. So if you do a back squat and you test a one rep max and it's 300 pounds, that is the maximal amount of force your body can produce. And so that's usually a measure of absolute muscular strength. You can have strength in multiple ranges or domains depending on what you're measuring, but that's going to be your absolute raw, like 100% strength. And so then muscular endurance is going to refer to the ability to sustain repeated developed force and activity that involves a relatively small portion of the body's muscle mass and or weight less than that of your one rep max. And so this is going to be like if you're doing maybe 15 rep back squats, there's going to be an element of endurance that's going to come in. Maybe you think of like your CrossFit classes where you have to have absolute raw, absolute strength to be able to lift the weight to begin with, but you're not going to be moving a weight that's 100% of your one rep max for maximal effort to cross the duration of class. You're going to maybe be using a bar that say has 65 pounds for a deadlift when your max deadlift is 250, but you're trying to produce a ton of force rapidly and that involves a component of endurance as well. So keeping that in mind, an example of what we used when I taught this in lab last week was we had students do a two-minute burpee test because that's a component of whole body strength, but you're trying to produce as much force rapidly as you can. It has an element of recovery and or, yes, strength can have endurance or oxidative-based components to Mm -hmm. it. They don't exist in isolation. And then muscular power is going to refer to the force you can produce over a short period of time. So think of this as like explosive jumping sprints. So you've seen people do those really high box jumps or vertical jumps or broad jumps or an all out sprint. It's just how much force you can produce over a short period of time. And so when we talk about muscular training, it has been shown to increase muscle strength 
power and endurance. And the keys is to use muscle training in ways that are specific. And we'll talk about this more in a second to the goals that we have. So getting stronger can help make you more powerful. Strength athletes use both of these things within their training. They don't necessarily exist in isolation. Just like if you have a better one rep max back squat and you're doing a wad with max reps in it, you're going to have a better, that's that weight's going to be lighter. So you're going to have a better endurance capacity within it. So it's important to think of these things never being in isolation, but if you want to train one individually, there's going to be specific ways we can look at that, right? So they're all related. Um, they don't just exist as one thing. And I think a lot of fitness information we get only talks about things as one mode of fitness. Okay, and so the last thing I'm gonna talk about here before Kate goes into VO2 max, because it starts to tie this into that, is physical work capacity. And so if Dr. Jenkins is listening to this episode, he'll be proud of me because this is our lab's entire theory on fitness is that work capacity is like the measure of fitness. Um, But it's essentially refers to the highest rate of work or energy metabolism that can be maintained by an individual for a a set amount of work. So how fast you can complete a task or a fitness leg routine or exercise or whatever it is, that's going to be your work capacity. So this can be looked at in multiple ways. So CrossFit does this a lot with Heather Wad. So if you if you complete a wad faster than someone else, you can do more physical work. Hi, Alyssa. What's a wad? Oh, workout of the day. So <laughs> Thank if you. you're yeah, sorry, I meant to <laughs> define all these things. So if you're doing like a circuit training workout with your friend and it's like you're doing a maximum amount of work in 10 minutes um, and you produce you do more reps, that would be another example of highest work capacity. If me and Kay go and run a 5k right now and she finishes it before me, she would have a higher rate of work capacity, which is essentially reflective of having higher fitness, which we talked about. Kate's probably faster runner than me. Not right now. And so (laughs) this is a kind of newer way of thinking about things, but that's when you think about your overall fitness and the capacity that you can do, but you can think about an individual to the sport and mode of fitness that you're doing. Um, but traditionally in exercise physiology, we usually classify fitness only as VO2 max, which Kate's going to talk about here. Yes. So you, if you have ever done an endurance-based sport, you have probably heard of VO2 max. In fact, if you own a smartwatch nowadays and you go on a run, your watch is going to try to calculate some number that's supposed to be reflective Mine's of your really VO2 rude. max. Mine's really I hope you know that. Yeah, a lot of them are really rude. Mine says my VO2 is 41 and I've <laughs> tested at 58 before. I don't yeah. think I'm 58 right now, but Still. I'm like, this is rude. How right. dare you? So let, let's just say that um, in terms of measuring your VO2, maybe your watch is probably not there yet. It is accounting for your heart rate which is a really important component when we measure VO2. But VO2 is like broken down into like defined as the maximal amount of oxygen you can uptake and use at the cellular level. So in order to measure this accurately, we actually are going to hook you up to a metabolic cart, put a mask on your face and measure the oxygen coming in (laughs) and the carbon dioxide coming out. So know that your watch is not capturing all of the elements um, in order to determine whatever quite literally measuring the oxygen your body is consuming like indirectly at the muscular level which is an important like that's what you're Mm -hmm. developing when you develop aerobic energy systems is your ability to take in that oxygen so I don't think your watch is taking oxygen samples yet no not yet yet. um some of them are coming up with those uh oh what are those like o2 sensors that oh like moxie that we're using oxygen Maybe. saturation yeah yeah, yeah. Like, so like they're years. they're getting the technology is on its way it's yeah. probably not there yet for most of your watches we could talk about that at the individual level in some other podcast yeah um so essentially we're talking about the oxygen that your body can breathe in and use to make energy we talked about you know this is your aerobic um 
energy system that we're measuring, but this can be your VO2 max is essentially your personal ceiling of your aerobic fitness performance. So what it, when you get your VO2 max, it's, it's just a number. It doesn't have to like mean anything to you. And a lot of people live and die by this number. (laughs) Um, but what's important to note is just because that is your, you know, aerobic fitness ceiling doesn't mean that it actually shows up in your race the same way, because there are, of course, a lot of other elements besides your, you know, personal aerobic capacity that are going to dictate your race day performance. Um, a lot of that can be like your mental effort, how long you're able to sustain really close to your VO2 max or those like higher percentages. Um, so it's not just about h- how high your ceiling is. It's also how close you can run cl- to your ceiling for as long as you can. Yeah. And so with a lot of gen pop like even middle pack, maybe upper middle pack people, your ability to be limited in your fitness is not determined by your VO2 max as much as you think of it. Um, but for a lot of people, it's honestly your body's ability to d- use that oxygen that's being delivered at the muscular level. That is limiting you far more than your oxygen delivery. So your yes. VO2 max is like essentially how much oxygen your body can deliver and use, but your ability to use oxygen and be efficient within your energy metabolism is going to limit you far more than maybe like super upper level elite people who like can't deliver any more oxygen yeah possibly they're completely saturated they're completely desaturating so keep that in mind that your general fitness is going to matter more and a component of this we touched on a little bit before is going to be your lactate clearance and so this is kind of usually referred to as your lactate threshold and so generally like classically defined lactate threshold is the point of which like if you track your blood lactate which is where it accumulates during a VO2 max test, we do these things where we take little finger sticks across the time and you graph it out. We have our undergrads do this. You'll see a point at which the dots will start to rapidly increase. So it'll be a general flat line. Your body's clearing it as fast as it's making it. And then at some point in time, it's going to start to pick up and then your body's not going to be able to clear it out like we talked about earlier. And it looks like an exponential curve if yes. you're familiar with like, you know, how things are graphed. <laughs> yeah, it's super rapid. And so your body gets to a point where it just cannot clear it anymore. And then it just accumulates because you're in a a traditional VO2 max tester, if you're sustaining a higher intensity for a long period of time, you're increasing that intensity or you're above a which the point you can clear it. And so in a VO2 max test, you go into, you can't do anymore. But if you're running at a maximal sustained effort, you're going to be forced to slow down because your body's going to need to go back below that general level. So within training, if you're an untrained person, your lactate threshold is going to occur around 45-ish to 65-ish percent of your maximal VO2. So you can see how having a really high VO2, but a poor lactate threshold or ability to clear it, you're not going to be able to work and sustain a pace above that. So the goal of your training is to shift that lactate threshold up and elite, um, and higher trained people are going to have a lactate threshold that's probably about 65 to 75% of their VO2 max. Now, really, really elite people are going to push that threshold a little bit more. Um, but that's why living and dying by your VO2 max is an oversimplistic way because mm-hmm. Kate and me can have the same exact VO2 max. But if Kate's lactate clearance is at 75%, but mine's at right. 45%, Kate's going to win the race, even though we have the same aerobic fitness levels because mm-hmm. she's able to sustain a pace at a higher percent of that and move faster and be able to produce energy at a higher work output which so it actually, all ties together yeah, and that's actually probably true of me I think I typically would 
have a lower VO2 max than people might expect, but my lactate threshold is high enough. Where I have that, a really high VO2 max, yeah. but I can't clear lactate <laughs> worth crap. I literally have had a 62 yeah. VO2 on a test, yeah. which my, no one believed that was real, but I'm pretty sure my, I have the, I don't do speed work, okay? I'm going to admit it, everybody. I run ultra marathons. I run a pill. That's my confession. But as you can see, that's the example I use a lot with my students, though, is if I was to do, I, I put like Alyssa hypothetically runs an ultra marathon in seven hours and 15 minutes. If she incorporates speed work training at or above her lactate threshold for six months before her next one and her lactate threshold is at now 65% of her VO2 max, how is she going to perform? And like, that's actually a, like a fun example I use with my students where I can show them like a picture of me running and like use a hands-on example, but you guys don't think of that yourself. So you want to improve that ability. And that's a big reason you guys will hear me harp on things. Like we'll talk a little bit more in here in a second on like polarized training and making your hard efforts hard and easy efforts easy, because you want to develop these systems so that you're able to mm-hmm. do that and yeah. actually improve that essentially tolerance to lactate. Right. You want to yeah. train in all systems yeah. so that you're able to, I mean, to use it all. <laughs> yeah. So um, moving into some training principles now. So we've talked a little bit about um, your energy systems, measures of fitness, how all of that plays together. Um, but when it comes to actually structuring your training, we want to harp on some of like the classic principles that you might have heard if you've you know stuck around in the exercise world for long enough. So the first one is going to be the fit principle. This is the probably the one that you you're most familiar with if you're outside of the exercise science realm. And it stands it's an acronym that stands for frequency, intensity, time and type. And this is kind of your general guide of if you are planning a programming exercise, you're going to need to know the frequency. So like how often are you doing this? Like if you are trying to develop a running program, are you doing it three times a week, five times a week, one time a week? So your frequency is, is you know, how many times per blank um, that you're engaging in that exercise. Your intensity, uh, like we said, can be dictated, um, can, can fluctuate. So if you set an intensity for one workout, it doesn't have to be the same intensity for the next, right? So this is variable. Not everything needs to be a hit workout. Right? Yes, for sure. Um, and we'll have someone on to talk about that, thank God. <laughs> um, but so your intensity can fluctuate even within the same workout. So you might have heard of like fartlek runs where you will like sprint for a moment uh, or, or, you know, at least increase your speed and then you'll slow down and then you'll increase again. So intensity can be defined in a variety of ways. And Alyssa is actually going go into some of the ways that we look to uh, classify intensity. Um, But that is the second principle, uh, the I. And then we have time, which is going to be the duration. So how long are you doing the activity for? And finally, we have type. So in this case, we are running, uh, but your type could be any modality. It could also be, um, you know, in in like lifting, what is the specific exercise that you are engaging with? Mm -hmm. And so you guys hear me probably harp about this all the time where I talk about polarized training or I tell people to run slower when I'm talking about running specific training. But you also hear me talk a lot about managing your fatigue and volume and intensity within your weight training as well as a way to actually make progress. Because as we talked about and I kind of joked about, like everyone thinks everything needs to be as high, hard, intense, most like self-destructive every single workout. And that's not necessarily true. So a lot of ways we use um, different or a lot of different terminology that we use in order to help us 
classify our training and our intensities is going to be either training zones, heart rate, RPE, or reps in reserve. And so when it comes to training zones, you'll hear me talk about this a lot with running because this is the methodology I use in my ebook Endure or with my one-on-one clients. And so you have either five or three zone training model, and it's basically based on very low, easy aerobic, like the most sustainable, low heart rate. You're able to breathe, talk. Talk, You can think of that like very low RPE, not a hard exertion. You can sustain it for a long period of time. And that's going to be like low zone training. So in that you are essentially developing all those aerobic systems, capillary density, your ability to deliver blood to your muscles, mitochondrial um, density within these cells. So you're essentially developing your body's ability to deliver and use oxygen at any low, non-high intense way that's recoverable, manageable. You can get more time, more time of a stimulus without kind Mm -hmm. of destroying your body as much. And then you go into higher zone, higher intensity work where that might be your HIIT training or your high hard interval training where you're able to still improve aerobic capacity. You're still going to stimulate things like mitochondrial improvements within your muscle, but you're also training that more glycolytic, fast twitch and or energy turnover as well. So we keep our hard runs hard and our easy runs easy because you're able to stimulate those systems from two different ways. But in from two different ways in two different ways. I guess it's a funny way of saying it, but you can, it's called polarized training because you switch between your high and hard and low and easy. So you're kind of getting to target both of those, but you're not doing high and hard every single day. And also there's a ton of benefit that comes from lower training. And so heart rate is a way that people use this. You can use RPE. I use both with clients, depending on what you do. And so depending on your personal max heart rate, which is 220 minus your age, your watches, or you can go online and you can figure this out. It will give you a five zone breakdown of your heart rates. And you can assume that um, if you prefer a three zone model, you can think of it as one and two combined and four and five combined. And three is like that gray zone we tend to avoid um, depending on what you're doing. But you can also use RPE for cardiovascular activities as well. And RPE is a highly validated scale that we use in exercise physiology. Generally, I use the 1 to 10 scale with Genpa people on the lab. We'll use 6 to 20. And this is just a way of assessing your own personal intensity. So think of this as like a pain scale when you're going to the doctors. It's kind of like that where 1 is like right now you're sitting there doing absolutely nothing. And 10 is like I'm going to vomit if I work any harder. And so when we're running, we can classify our RPE on that scale. Where are we feeling? I don't have it pulled up right now, but I I want to say like low zone aerobic work is probably like a four to six, depending on that. And then mm-hmm. high and hard, those upper levels are going to be probably that eight, eight. to yeah. maybe 10. Usually you're not totally out of 10, like eight to nine. Um, and then the same applies when we're talking about resistance training. RPE has been validated. Um, I think it's Zotero. I can't remember his names, but there's a couple of really good studies where RPE was validated in strength training and they use the 10 point scale as well. And we use it a lot. I use that a ton with clients because it's really, really helpful for managing fatigue within our lifts. And it correlates with something called reps in reserve. So that's how many reps you have left in the tank. And that parallels to the RPE. So we're still using that one to 10 scale. And when you're doing your strength training in the gym, you're going to probably aim for what they say is like right below fatigue, depending on the lifts that you're doing, the place it is in your program or your cycle this isn't always 100 percent true it can fluctuate between seven and nine but you're usually aiming for like an rpe eight which means that you have about two reps left in the tank so you're always training just below in your maximal effort fatigue because you don't need to go to that maximal fatigue level to make progress but you can use rpe to assess that and then over time say one week you're doing 135 pound back squats and rpe eight and you go and train the next week but you're having a really bad day and you don't feel great and you have low energy and if you're managing your fatigue and output and energy 
at an RPE8, you might go down to 130 for that same set, but then the next week you might feel amazing, feel great, and go up to 140, but within managing your activity based off that exertion and reps in the tank, you're able to make it unique to you while also managing your fatigue and honestly, like just taller, life, just yeah. life within it. So I really like RPE for that reason. Yeah. And then reps and reserves makes it a lot easier to apply for people because it's like you have two reps left in the tank, which a lot of people don't know what maximal fatigue feels like. If that's confusing for you, I recommend you going like all the way to fatigue to know what it feels like. But if you say do it, so you can only do about two reps left, which is still very hard. It's easier to know, okay, like this is, this is managing yeah. my intensity and fatigue. And so there's variance to that. Sometimes you can go up to RBE nine or 10 if you're maxing out. Sometimes with novice trainings, you might go for like a six, seven. So don't take that like a hundred percent accurate, but it's a way to prescribe and manage volume essentially. Yeah. And, and we both love RPE for programming because it is one of the only <laughs> subjective measures. Mm -hmm. And that's important to note because like you said, there might be a day where you're just not feeling it. And the same number, you know, on the barbell doesn't feel the same to you. Just as the same running pace or the same heart rate zone might not always feel the same day to day. Of course, when you add things like how hot it is in the room <laughs> and like um, just various other factors, your own personal stress, um, it's important to have this kind of subjective measure to keep you in check of what feels good to you that day. Um, and is also a way to maybe manage or prevent injury because you are being in tune with your body and you're listening to your own signals about what feels too much for you instead of relying on just the number that you've put in your program. So I personally love using a combination of non-emotional, completely subjective, logical integration of training zones, RPE, heart rate, and RIR, depending on what we're doing. So I use percentage-based yeah. training with my coach right now, but I also give him RPEs after because we mm -hmm. know my fatigue right now with running is different. So he prescribes me 90%, but I know my body feels like that feels like more like 95. And I know that in the moment because I can tell, like, I'm like my RPE is nine when it should be a seven or mm -hmm. an eight based off that. And so I can give him that subjective feedback of how that feels for me. Um, where if you're running and it's hot out, your heart rate's going to be higher, but your yeah. RP, so your RPE might be higher, but the pace might be really slow. And this also accounts for some individual variation because for somebody like me, I have a naturally high exercising heart rate. So I can have a really low, healthy um, resting heart rate and it looks all great. And then the moment I start exercising, my anticipatory response is super high. And then just my overall exercising heart rate is much higher than it quote unquote should be. So if I relied on the heart rate zones based on, you know, 220 minus your age, whatever formula you're getting, um, I would be running heavy all the time, you I know? I do too now that I have my watch. I'm like, why am I at 179? I can talk. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like, I'm literally just dancing. Which yeah. is why you use things like the talk test or RPE to help you facilitate that because sometimes your heart rate data is really not going to give you. Or shameless plug, if you use Endure for running, I help you calculate your pace zones for you. There so you, go. you have that that information as well. Yeah. But we're going to pass this off. We're going to talk about some neuromuscular <laughs> adaptations with Kay because I think we could probably make a whole podcast Woo! out of the other stuff. So this is just a fun little tangent here because when we're talking about training principles, um, neuromuscular physiology is one of the labs that I teach. It's the primary lab I teach. Um, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is not super applicable because it's nitty gritty fun science stuff. But um, probably the most important neuromuscular conversation that we can have is what happens when you are untrained or um, maybe you're beginning a new modality of exercise. So you of course should know that your brain connects to your muscles via neurons, I hope. <laughs> okay. So your nervous system is- You don't, it's okay. We're not judging you. <laughs> That's how everything works is your, your neurons send from your brain, tell your body what to do. Okay. Yes. So 
when you are using nerves to what we say innervate muscle or you're using nerves to essentially signal, hey, muscle, it's time for a contraction. Um, That all doesn't happen super smoothly. If you are an untrained individual, you're lifting weights for the first time, you're trying a new sport for the first time. Um, When you're doing a movement pattern that is less familiar to your body, you're less efficient from a neurological perspective. And essentially what this means is that we have nerves that innervate muscle fibers. And we have so many, let's just say, you know, for sake of simplicity, you have a hundred muscle fibers. If you have a hundred muscle fibers in that muscle, when you are first starting out, let's say it's a bicep curl, your first bicep curl or your first one in a while, you are maybe using 70% of, or you're using 70 of your muscle fibers or even less. Um, So you're not able to recruit all of them. And we're talking about when you're producing maximal force here. But of course, if you're working at a lower, um, RPE, a lower percent of your one RM, it's even less of your fibers are working because they don't all have to work, right? It's like it's efficient that way. Synchronized the way it's not like the synchronized swimmers are their coordination (laughs) is just off. Yeah, so it's kind of like watching a synchronized swim show where nobody got the memo that the music changed and that there's like five other additional swimmers doing a different thing. And I think it's important (laughs) to add here, and you can like elaborate on this too. This doesn't mean that you need like weird activation exercises. Your body is still sending these fires, these these signals to your muscles. They're still working. They're still firing. It's just not. It's a little awkward. It's like a baby deer. Yes, Bambi. It's like Bambi. Bambi. Yeah. So Uh, don't (laughs) think that you need to go add a band to your bicep curls now for this to be stimulated. There's there's literally nothing that you have to do except continually do the exercise week after week, day after day, whatever. So um, know that when you are a beginner, and this is honestly just a benefit. So if you're returning to lifting or beginning your lifting program, um, you're going to have more rapid neurological adaptations. So we often see beginners make really rapid strength gains um, early on. Newbie gains. Newbie gains. It's the best. It makes you feel so good uh, when you're coming back into it. So it kind of helps you, you know, light that fire, get that motivation because you're improving like almost session to session, week to week sometimes. Um, It can be pretty substantial. So essentially what's happening there is that your neurons are getting more coordinated, right? So we're able to recruit more muscle fibers um, and you're able to recruit them in a way that, um, you know, if you're working submaximally, alternates some fibers so that you're not fatiguing one set of them out all over. Um, Essentially, have you ever heard the phrase, sorry, if you've ever heard the phrase like neurons that fire together, wire together, essentially you're building this like network of neural connections to your muscles that is really coordinated and allows you to just work more efficiently and work to a higher percent of your capacity. I think that's a good transition right there for everything with training is that it's I love this about fitness. So if you guys don't know, I'm a fitness nerd. Weird. I'm in school for like 100 years. What? I'm a big, Alyssa, you're into I'm fitness? I'm such a fitness nerd, like science nerd on this. But like when you think about fitness and exercise, all it is is your body getting more efficient. That's all you're doing with fitness training is you are mm-hmm. tricking your body into being more efficient. So we talked about earlier is your body loves homeostasis. Mm-hmm. And so you're basically giving your body something a little bit harder than it did before. So it has to respond and adapt to become more efficient. Mm-hmm. So this is why like when you're running, like you'll essentially like we say running is bad for fat loss because the whole purpose of running is to become more 
efficient, use less fuel, waste less energy. Your body wants to conserve energy. Like the goal there is to become more efficient or be able to work at higher rates, but you have to have that underlying efficiency to do that. So when I love talking about fitness, cause it's literally just forcing your body to get uncomfortable so that the next time it sees it, it's like, whoa, 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 we saw this before we got to get better. We want to be able to handle this. And that's why you always have to progressively overload and things yes. like that. So I'm going to so, oh, it's me. Yeah, I'm, it, it's yeah my you got to it. Keep going. Oh, I got this. I thought it was Kate's turn to <laughs> No, talk. you had it. <laughs> so, so you hear people talk a lot about progressive overload, and this is important, right? Because when you talk, Kate talked about the FIT principles, you want to increase, increase some sort of your stimulus over time. Now, this does not mean you're going to be faster or lift a substantial amount of weight more forever and ever and ever. You want to look broad picture at what you're doing. And so when you think about training for running over time, you're either going to increase your time on feet, your speed your efficiency, which is like, I want to say running form, but people get really hung up on that, but just essentially like your efficiency within running. So like, and some of this, your body naturally does. So it's not something you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. But people think of progressive overload as you only have to run faster or more, or you have to lift heavier or more. And there's a ton of ways you can do this. Like if you're new to lifting, um, increasing your form or your comfortness or your fatigability and or weights and just allowing those adaptations to happen. Yeah. And so that's when we talk about progressive overload, that's exactly what this is talking about is just your body's ability to gradually adapt over time but you just need to expose it to a slightly greater stimulus it doesn't need to be tremendous every single time so it will drop and adapt and that's why we encourage you to do like well structured training programs because they allow you to track and measure these variables as you go and you'll hear a lot of our interviewees us talk about a lot of this especially within our own training and how we approach things and being intentional because with these variables if you look at things like your training zones and your RPE and your RIR and your volume, you're able to actually see why you are or aren't making progress or things you can change and adapt rather than throwing spaghetti at the wall every week. So you have to progressively overload, expose your body to a little bit of a greater stimulus over time, but it also needs to be specific. So training is specific. And I think that's really, really important. I think sometimes people get confused because I mean, both Kate and I do two modes of training. Obviously Kate's a little more like aerobic primary than me. Um, but Training is specific. And so like I mentioned earlier, if I wanted to be a better runner, I would have to specifically train to be a better runner. Like if I wanted to get faster or do maybe start racing 5Ks instead of ultra marathons, that I would have to be specific. So we think of running as only running, right? But me training for 100K and running 100K is completely different than me training for even my 50Ks, my half marathons, things like that. The training is very different, but the training has to be specific to what I'm doing. And so then a really great example of this is like if you want to be able to squat heavier, you're going to have to squat to get better at squatting heavier. You're not going to run, train yourself into squatting heavier, and you're not going to do just quad extensions into training yourself to squat heavier. You're going to have to specifically train that. You're not going to become an Olympic lifter by practicing backstroke. So like training has to be specific to the mode of whatever your goal is. And this is a lot we'll talk about when, especially like when I'm debunking things on Instagram with training is like a lot of people will give you things to do that you feel like are being specific to your goal, but they actually aren't. Right. And so, yeah. But this isn't to say that cross-training is never appropriate. And there's, of course, an argument for using different modalities and, and, you know, maybe in your off-season dabbling and other things to just kind of increase your body's general adaptation to different ways of moving. Um, Just like 
you know, like you said, the leg extension machine. Yeah, it's not directly working on your squat, but yeah, you are improving, you know, some of your muscle yeah. tone in that, those areas that could improve your squat kind of. Um, you just can't not as, squat at all. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> that, that's the point that I'm making is you can't right. not squat You at need all. to be specific and address your goals specifically head on in a very specified way. But that doesn't mean that cross training is completely pointless, but it does mean that if you have hyper specific goals, you need to have hyper specific training. Yes, I wasn't going to run an ultra marathon by just back squatting. Right. As much as I wish that that was the truth, I was going to have to run at some point in time. And that yeah. holds true for all those things. That's a great point. Okay, and on our last one is reversibility. And that is, just like I said, your body likes homeostasis and comfort. And if you're not constantly exposing it to a new stimulus or at least the same stimulus, you'll lose it if you don't use it. And so... Great example of that. I'm just going to use myself as an example. I haven't done a CrossFit workout in two months because I'm specifically training for an ultra marathon. So when I go back to my box, if anyone from my box is listening to this right now, prayers on my first workout back. <laughs> but I remember when I first joined my gym last October after my 50 mile, I was trashed. It was, I was embarrassed on how unable I was to complete a simple body weight workout because I had mm -hmm. not trained in that specific type of fitness yes. for a while. And so the same thing happens with Kate, you haven't trained for an Ironman. I haven't gotten on the bike in a while, y'all. Yeah. So yeah. Kate's going to have to gain back her fitness because she lost it. Now, the good news for you guys though is Gaining back fitness is a lot easier than developing fitness. Once mm -hmm. you kind of have developed that baseline, you're going to be able to gain it back a little bit easier. This is why I can go back in the gym and start lifting really heavy, really rapidly um, after a short time off, maybe with my taper and running, because I had to develop that fundamental base at one yes. point or another. But overall, if you don't continue to train at the same volume, you are going to lose your ability to be that strong, that fast, or do that much work. And that happens. Sometimes it's unfortunate and it, you can't help it. You're injured or you take time off. It's important not to compare yourself to your former version of yourself. But keeping in mind that just while your body needs progressive overload to stimulate improvements, if you're not giving your body a stimulus, it's going to lose it. But that doesn't mean you always have to give it more. You can, in fact, maintain fitness status. Yes. That it's, is an option. It's actually one of the best, most frequently used things by probably all of us is just yeah. like putting in maintenance mode when we call it our quote unquote off season. A lot of that is just like trying to maintain fitness yeah. while not overdoing it on our, our workloads. Um, and if you want a little bit more on the psychological side of returning to exercise, you can listen to Coach Carmichael chat number one. Yes. Stop starting over. So um, to wrap this up, I, I would like to kind of summary because I feel yes. like we have we have like gone in little divots everywhere. We've twist and turned. Um, we, we talked about your energy systems, where your energy is coming from, the use of oxygen, without oxygen, how that translates into the types of activities that we're doing, the length, the duration, the fiber types we're recruiting, how that relates to measures of fitness and your training principles. And if all of that was just like, you got your toes wet, that was great, but you really need some some visual representations of all of this, Alyssa's got you covered. So guys, if you guys aren't aware, because I love me some exercise science, I know a lot of you guys crave more information, more knowledge, and so luckily for you, I have two products that do exactly this. So if you are looking specifically for more exercise science where it pertains to strength, gaining muscle, um, more just general fitness specific stuff, you are definitely wanna gonna get your hands on my training guide. That's the one that teaches you a lot about structuring your lifts, giving you examples of like different terminology within weight training, how to actually like program your week, 
your days, um, how to select your movements, how to organize your workouts. And then the this gives you like the similar or same knowledge, but probably a little more in depth than we gave you today. When talking about like energy systems, it gives you figures on what this looks like, muscle fiber types, how these pertain to your training, how we utilize them. And then if you are interested in running more specifically, Endure uses same science, right? Because the science isn't different. It's just applied differently between different modes of fitness and whatever we're specifically training for. So Endure has tons of science that breaks down these same things as well, but then explains it in the context of running. And we dive in a little bit more there on polarized training, running zones, things like that. But both of them touched about things like RPE, how to integrate that within your training program, the science behind what you should be doing and like what drives hypertrophy versus like endurance gains. And so luckily for you guys, because I love you for listening to the podcast, we're going to give you 15% off all of my products with the code MESSYMIDDLEPOD. That's M-E-S-S-Y-M-I-D-D-L-E P-O-D. And so if you use this coupon, all the profits go to supporting the podcast. So, and it saves you 15% off and we appreciate that you use that. So if you guys want to learn more and you appreciate this episode and you just are craving even more knowledge, go ahead and get those. We appreciate you guys listening. We hope you learned something. Kate? Signing you off. We want you to live well. Demand better. And and stay messy. Boom. I didn't see Trifoss. Should I even? No. (laughs) Tell the people. I didn't Don't overthink it here. Triphosphate. Talk, teach me. Uh, okay. Talk to me and teach me. Okay, great. Pretend I'm your little okay. exercise science student who doesn't give a shit about anything. Okay.